Okay, we're doing a couple little short single studies to take us up to Thanksgiving. So we have this week and next week, and then the week after that we will have a Thanksgiving communion service. That'd be the Tuesday before Thanksgiving. So we'll have that Sunday. It'll be our Thanksgiving dinner here, and Tuesday a Thanksgiving communion, and then you'll have your own at home. And then the next day, it's Christmas. Next day is Saturday. We're going for our Christmas tree. So uh, we're looking forward to all of that. So we have this week and next week uh, as the two last Bible studies of the year. And then, uh, like I said, we'll have communion. And after that, it's basically special services and events in the beginning of December. Uh, We'll be doing... Uh, some caroling around the neighborhood probably and we'll be doing some uh, the food drive is one of those Tuesdays and uh, then we're getting right up on Christmas imagine that just like that tonight we're going to look at a, a passage that you probably never even looked at before that's okay as, as once in a while we gotta uh, dig around find something new Something nobody's thought of before. We're going to the book of Amos. In the back of your Old Testament, what call the minor prophets, and they go Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum. So the third one is Amos. And we're going to take a look at this fella named Amos tonight and what he had to say. He's a prophet. We just finished looking at the prophet Ezekiel. We did a pretty long study on Ezekiel from September all the way up till just now. And uh, that was instructive for us. We saw these fantastic visions that Ezekiel had. And uh, Ezekiel and Isaiah, the two famous prophets are called major prophets. Amos is called a minor prophet. What's the difference? One was long-winded and the other one wasn't. That's really all it is. It's not that one is better than the other, one is more important than the other. It's that Isaiah and Ezekiel wrote 40, 50, Isaiah 63 chapters, and Amos didn't. And so a lot of these guys wrote one chapter They call them a minor prophet, not because they're minor in what they did, but because they just didn't say quite as much. And I love to think about Amos because of who he is. Sometimes in the Bible, there's a lesson to be learned that's not in the Bible. It's there. They expect you to glean it from the passages that you're reading Uh, But it doesn't come out and say, hey, this is what you're supposed to learn. Sometimes you've got to take it and draw out of it. And we're going to, that's what I draw out of this is what makes me happy. Let's start right here in chapter 1, verse 1 of Amos. The words of Amos, who was among the herdsmen of Tekoa, which he saw concerning Israel in the days of Uzziah, the king of Judah, in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, two years 
before the earthquake. So he gives us his exact time where it is. He's a couple hundred years after Solomon builds the temple. And uh, it's, he's, uh, he's from Judah. All right? If you remember your map, uh, you got the Jordan River and the Dead Sea and the Sea of Galilee and Jerusalem is down here and the border is there. And this southern kingdom, they were split into two kingdoms, was called the kingdom of Judah and the northern kingdom is called the kingdom of Israel. They were all the Jews, but they called the northern one Israel and the southern one Judah. And they split apart and in Israel they had no good kings, none. Not one. All right, right from the beginning, they set up idols. Started with a, a golden idol in Bethel and up in Dan, a golden calf. They started worshiping the golden calf. And every king after that embraced that philosophy. And so uh, there was never a good king, a godly king up in Israel. Down in Judah, they did have some good kings and some bad ones, but more good ones there. <clears throat> Somewhere down around here, a little place called Tekoa, and uh, uh, that's where uh, Amos comes from. He lives down in Judah, and he's a shepherd. He's a shepherd. And he's a little bit more than that. If you turn over to chapter 7 of Amos, chapter 7... And you look at verse 14, it says, Then answered Amos and said to Amaziah, uh, chapter 7, verse 14, I was no prophet, neither was I a prophet's son, but I was a herdsman and a gatherer of sycamore fruit. And the Lord took me as I followed the flock, and the Lord said to me, Go prophesy to my people Israel. So he said, I was just tending sheep. Somebody challenged him there and says, What makes you think you could? He said, I was nobody. Now, Isaiah was related to the family of David, he was royal. It was in the royal family. Ezekiel was the cream of the crop. You remember when Nebuchadnezzar cleaned out the, the best people of Israel and took them off to Babylon. The first wave was Ezekiel. And so he's, he's noted for his abilities and intellect. And so you got uh, Isaiah, uh, a royal poet, obviously well-educated. Ezekiel talented man is clear to see he's talented then you got a shepherd <laughs> that makes me feel good because he said i wasn't any prophet or a son of a prophet and what they had in those days in his time was schools uh, Elijah and Elisha set up a series of schools and they went from town to town and they called they were going to make a school for prophets so local people who want, believed that they wanted God's uh, instruction came and went to school. Uh, Amos said, not me, I never went to school. All I did was tend sheep. And then there's something interesting because he said, I was a gatherer of sycamore fruit. Now, sycamore fruit is nothing you go gather 
<laughs> it's a wild fruit. And the sycamore trees uh, weren't, weren't cultivated. They just grew wherever they grew. Uh, but it does have an edible fruit on it. And so he said, I just, that's how I got by. I went around and picked wild fruit, wild sycamore trees. And I found them because you're tending sheep, you know where the trees are. So he said, that's how I survived, by picking sycamore fruit, wild fruit. I don't know if you ever picked wild fruit or not. When I was a kid, uh, there had been lots of farms down Sour Springs Road, down that way, that were all gone because the government bought their property. And on these farms would be one or two old apple trees. My mother would say, you go find them apple trees. Get me some apples. So my brother and I would be looking around. We found apple trees here and there like they were wild, just all growing up. We found a pear orchard once, and we did pretty good collecting wild fruit. And Amos said, that's how I got by. So he said, I'm not fancy. But God said, I want you to talk for me. So I like that, because I'm not fancy. I got no education, but God said, talk. Said, okay, <laughs> here I am. I like Amos, because he's just a plain old guy. Now... He's quite a uh, knowledgeable and bold fella. He's from Judah, down here. He crosses the border up into Israel, and he's going to prophesy there. And uh, he says, here's what, I, here's what God said, verse 2. He said, the Lord will roar from Zion and utter his voice from Jerusalem. The habitations of the shepherds shall mourn the top of Carmel, shall wither. All right. And so God's got something to say, and you better listen, because he's going to melt the top of the mountain when he says it. So that's how he starts out. He, he doesn't take prisoners. He says, here we go. I got something to say. Now what he does is he first deals with the enemies of God's children. Right, there are enemies all around. Enemy of God's Israel. He's going to deal with them first. And so he has a quite unusual phrase. Look down at verse 3. Now, thus saith the Lord, for three transgressions of Damascus, and for four I will not turn away the punishment thereof, because they have threshed Gilead with threshing instruments of iron. And so what happened was uh, Damascus, which was Syria, Syria is still there today, Syria... Uh, moved over into Israel, and they, when they got across uh, the Jordan River, they were right up in here, Syria, they came across the Jordan River to the land called Gilead, and they were, were very harsh on those people over there. And so uh, Amos says, for three or four, it's going to be three or four transgressions. Why does he say that? Well, look what he says as we go down through um, verse 6. Thus saith the Lord, for three or four transgressions of Gaza. Verse 9. Thus saith the Lord, for three transgressions of Tyrus, or for four. 
He keeps repeating for three or four. Verse 10, I will send a fire on the wall of Tyrus, which will devour the palaces thereof and uh, for three or four. He keeps mentioning three or four. Why does he say that? Well, the point was it's a climbing number. It's a climbing number. All right? So it's not just a sin that you did. You so you keep adding to it. Right. So you keep adding and adding to it for three and four. And the the idea is that they kept doing more and more and more. And so he says, "I'm going to deal with this, and we're going to we're going to uh, talk about the more the higher and higher the number of your sin." It keeps climbing up. And so there is a defiance against God. Defiance against God. And they're taking it out on God's people. And so he pronounces judgment on uh, the Philistines and the Syrians and the Phoenicians and all around there. All those neighboring towns he, he pronounces judgment on them. Now, let's take a look at a little closer because now he's going to talk about Israel. That's who he's really sent to. Chapter 2 and verse 6. Thus saith the Lord, for three transgressions of Israel, or for four, I will not turn away the punishment thereof, because they sold the righteous for silver and the poor for a pair of shoes. This time in the history of Israel, uh, they were doing pretty good. At this time, under King Jeroboam II, Jeroboam, they were making good money. They were successful, building up the kingdom. And he said, you did it on the backs of the poor. He said, you sold a man for silver, or you could buy him for a pair of shoes. He worked for you and slave for you, and you could just give him a pair of shoes, and that was it. It's all you needed. Now watch this in verse seven. The pant that pant after the dust of the earth on the head of the poor, that turn aside the way of the meek, and a man and his father will go into some maid to profane my holy name. All right, they were not doing what they should do. All right, they were against God. Now, verse 12, down to verse 12. But you gave the Nazarites wine to drink and commanded the prophets, saying, prophesy not. And so, in Israel, now there was an anti-God, the same as there was in the nations around. There was anti-God. So a Nazarite was a person who was, who was dedicated to God in his life, and he had to follow certain rules. Samson was a Nazarite. You couldn't drink alcohol at all. He said, what did you do? Somebody came along and said, I'm committed to God. I want to be a Nazarite. He said, here, take a drink. Take a drink. And you made them drink. Broke their vows. All right? And he said, what was the other one he had there in verse uh, 12? He said, the the prophets, you tell them, you will not speak. Shut up. We don't want to hear about God. And so there's an anti-God sentiment. They're enjoying their money. 
But they don't want anything to do with God. And so he's called uh, to deal with it. Chapter 3 now, he says, it's actually kind of a famous saying of Amos. Verse 3. Chapter 3, verse 3. Can two walk together except they be agreed? Can two walk together? He's talking about Israel and God. Can you walk with God and not agree with him? No, you can't. You can't say, I'm living with God. I'm doing what he wants. I just don't like what he says. (laughs) That's what they were doing. So, no, no, we're not going to allow that. That's not the way it goes. All right, now, over to chapter 5. We're just laying down sort of a groundwork for what we're going to come to here as we go along. Chapter 5 and verse 21. I hate, I despise your feast days. I will not smell in your solemn assemblies. Though you offer me burnt offerings and your meat offerings, I will not accept them. Neither will I regard the peace offerings of your fat beasts. Take thou away from me the noise of thy songs, for I will not hear the melody of thy viols, but let judgment run down as waters and righteousness as a mighty stream. During the time when they were telling they were against God, they were all going to church. They'd go to the service and sacrifice do all kinds of things, have a special feast day. And they'd say, this is the feast of the Lord. And God says, I hate it. You sacrifice to me, and in your heart, you're rebellious against God. I hate it. I hate the sound of your music. Wow. You'd think if you sang a song, God would like it. No, 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 no. God likes what's in the heart when it's right. And when they say, we're going to sing our songs and have our feast for the Lord. He says, it's not for me. I hate them. And so they make a sacrifice. The idea is that the smoke goes up to heaven and God smells it. So I'm pleased with it. He says, I hate it. I won't even, I'll close my nose. I will not smell it. I don't want to smell that fake sacrifice that fake offering. I want it to be real. So that's what he sets up. And that's what's going on. They are on the backs of the poor, making lots of money and being very successful to the harm of their own people. They are anti-God in that if somebody comes along and really wants to follow God, all they do is discourage them. And then they go a little bit farther than that, and they fake their services. Of course, what they were attempting to do was copy the temple in Jerusalem. The temple in Jerusalem had all these services, and the sacrifices, and the music, and all those things. And so they said, well, we can do the same thing. We'll do the same thing as Jerusalem. And they said, no, you won't. It's not the same. If your heart isn't right, it's not the same. Now, Amos has been sent there to 
pronounce judgment, God's not going to put up with it. He says, I, your, your number keeps going up, three, four, keeps climbing, and I'm not going to have it. And so I'm sending you this shepherd guy. And he's going up there. He's going to tell you how far I'm going to go. And then I'm going to put an end to it. And so we have a series of visions that Amos has. They're not like anybody else's visions. They're real um, simple. They are also uh, a little bit wild-like. He's a farm boy, wanders around out in the, in the wilderness. Most of his life he's been tending sheep. And so naturally he's going to be able to interpret in his mind the things that he's seen. So God gives him these little simple visions. We've got five of them we're going to look at, starting in verse, chapter number 7. Chapter number 7. Here we go. And these are the visions of Amos, the shepherd prophet. Thus hath the Lord God showed unto me, and behold, he formed grasshoppers in the beginning of the shooting up of the latter growth. And lo, it was a latter growth after the king's mowings. So for you farm boys, uh, he's talking about second cutting. Those of us who've done farm work know that there's a first cutting and a second cutting. And the first cutting uh, is a coarser hay. Second cutting is a nice, nicer hay. All right? You want to buy second cutting when you want the best. And so uh, he says, they took the first cutting, which was the king's mowing. I told you that... The, uh, the, the king, this kingdom was successful because he said to the farmers, I'll take first cutting. So the first mowing is mine. Taxes, that's called taxes, right? You know what that is, right? You don't give the government hay. Well, you know, green stuff, but not hay. All right? So that's what he's taking. And so he says, we took the first cutting and the second cutting just starting to sprout and come up. And I saw these grasshoppers all over eating. All right. It came to pass, verse 2, when they had made an end of eating the grass of the land, then I said, O Lord God, forgive, I beseech thee, by whom shall Jacob arise, for he is small. So what this would represent, this vision that he has of grasshoppers eating all the green grass, he said it represents uh, famine, hard times. And God is saying for your attitudes and for the way you treat the poor and for your attitude towards me, I'm going to send judgment. So here's one. Going to send the grasshopper, going to eat the second cutting, so... There comes famine to the land. And Amos says, please, Lord, can't you forgive that? Would you forgive that? Verse 3, and the Lord repented for this. It shall not be, saith the Lord. Well, that's good. 
Nice to have a guy like Amos on your side, isn't it? God says, here's what I'm thinking about doing. And he has a vision of grasshoppers eating every green thing. And then he says, that's awful harsh. Awful harsh. Okay, I won't do it. We love Amos, right? He's on our side. He's helping us. Coming between us and God, when God is saying, I'm had it with you, he's coming between and he's helping. Let's see what happens next. Verse 4. Thus says the Lord God showed unto me, Behold, the Lord God called to contend by fire, and it devoured the great deep and did eat up a part. And so the first one, vision is grasshoppers. And God says, okay, we'll stop that. We won't do that. Now the next one is fire. Spread fire. He says it's a very hot and consuming fire. Pretty scary thing, a big fire. Verse 4, the Lord God showed unto me, and behold, the Lord God called to contend by fire and devoured the great deep and eat up a part. Then said I, O Lord God, cease, I beseech thee. By whom shall Jacob arise? For he is small. And the Lord repented for this. This also shall not be, saith the Lord. So, once again, uh, he prays, Amos prays, and God says, okay, I won't do the fire. I won't do the fire. So the grasshopper one say, well, that's not vicious. Fire can be much more devastating, right? But God stopped both of them. No? See what happens next. Verse 7. And he showed me, and behold, the Lord stood upon a wall made by a plumb line with a plumb line in his hand. And the Lord said unto me, Amos, what seest thou? I said, a plumb line. And then said the Lord, Behold, I will set a plumb line in the midst of my people Israel, and I will not again pass by them anymore. The high places of Isaac shall be desolate. Sanctuaries of Israel shall be laid waste. I will rise against the house of Jeroboam with the sword. Grasshopper, please God, don't. Okay. Fire, God, it's too much. Okay. And God says, now I got a plumb line. All right. You're not going to stop me three times. I got a plumb line. Now, nowadays we got lasers and every other thing you can think of. In the old days and still today, good masons like a plumb line. Hang it up somewhere. It's a string. It's got a weight on the bottom, and it's nice and straight. And when they built their wall, it goes right to the line. Don't push on the line. They're working with Leo. Don't push on the line. Don't move that line. you got to stay right by that line. Keep that wall straight, and that line will always be straight. That plumb line works. So you're going to keep it straight. And God says, okay, Amos, he says, this time I'm holding up a plumb line and I will be measuring. I'm going to measure Israel 
And they better be straight. Of course, they're not straight, are they? They're not straight. They go to church and sing things they don't believe in. They tell the prophets to shut up and quit talking. They take the Nazareth who's committed his life to God and pour alcohol down his throat. They abuse the poor. They do all kinds of things. And God said, that's it. This is the end. You got two of them turned. Third one, no. So I'm going to measure you. I'm going to hold up a standard. A plumb line is a standard. If we're going to live the way God wants us to live, there's a standard. There's a standard for it. You've got to follow the way things the way God wants them done. You can't say, well, I can kind of do what I want. I'll kind of do what I want. It's okay. No, it's not okay. God's got a plumb line. Is your wall straight? Are you building a good solid wall that's straight like it ought to be? Or is it all crooked? He says, if it's crooked, I'm not going to put up with it. I'm going to be watching. I'm going to have my eye on it. Remember uh, in the book of Daniel, uh, about the fifth chapter, Daniel's an old man and he's talking to Belshazzar, who is Nebuchadnezzar's grandson. And Belshazzar's having a big old party and then all of a sudden there's a hand, just a hand, and it writes on the wall. And said old Belshazzar was shaking in his boots. And he wrote, Meany, meany, tickle you farson. Which means we measured and we weighed and you came up short. Meany, meany, numbered, numbered. We numbered, we looked at you, measured you, weighed you, and you came up short. And so Belshazzar said he was weighed and measured by God. Now that's what he's doing with his plumb line. God's holding it in the middle of his people and saying, how's your life? Does it add up like it should? Is it straight? Or are you all crooked and all every other which way, whichever way you feel like it? You've been weighed, you've been found wanting. He said, "We, we must do things the way God wants them done. Strange cases sometimes where a guy, I know this fella, he swears every other word. And just the other day he said, I'm okay in this world, I got Jesus. Hard to tell, hard to tell. I wouldn't know it if he didn't say it. And I'm not so sure about it either. Because you can't just do what you want and then say, I got Jesus. Not how it goes. You've got to be doing things the way God wants them done. He's got a plumb line. So the first one, all right. Second one, we'll let it go. Third one, no more. And that's exactly how it unfolded historically. Out of the north, up over here, is Assyria. And they are a really 
tough bunch of people. They're going to become the first empire of the whole world. First one. And they're famous for cutting off people's heads. And they go into town. And, well, we're here taking over. Okay, we surrender. Yeah, well, that's okay. Off with your head. And they put two piles of heads outside the gates of the city they took over. Pretty convincing. These guys aren't fooling around. And they made laws that were unchangeable. They said, once we make a law, you can't change it. So if we come in and cut off your head, this is it. They were famous for really violent ways. They came the first time to Israel called on by the king of Israel for a little help against somebody else. They came the second time of Israel and they came up through this part and took a whole lot of captives. The third time, first time the grasshoppers, well, not a big deal. Second time of fire, they took a lot of captives. Third time, nothing left. Nothing left. Nothing. Cities entirely destroyed. Populations entirely wiped out. Whoever's left is a captive up in Assyria. Unlike Babylon, who took people into captivity so that they could get use out of them. Nebuchadnezzar wants the cream of the crop to work for him. To help him in the government. That's why Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego and Daniel are in the government. Because they're young and bright and intelligent. And the government wants that. Not anymore, by the way. <laughs> That's what Nebuchadnezzar wanted. He wanted the cream of the crop. Not so with Assyria. The Israelites that went up into Assyria were kind of basically never heard from again. If they survived and were able to keep a little bit of their family line just from mouth to mouth, generation to generation, they did. By and large, they're gone. And so they were called the Ten Lost Tribes. Now, of course, some people say, oh, they wandered across Europe and came to England and became Jews. So English people are Jewish. That's kind of a wacky, <laughs> that's a pretty extreme point of view. There are some people who preach that regularly, that the English people are the ten lost tribes, and the Norwegians too. I don't know how they got us together. But, uh, but no, uh, basically, when these people were taken captive by Assyria, they're gone. It's over. Now, we know that some of them preserved their own personal information because in the New Testament we find people in those tribes who still know what tribe they belong to. Because some families, it's their nature to keep track of their uh, family history. And it was so among the Jews, but not uh, by and large, they, they just whoosh, they were wiped out and gone. So this entire country was gone. That's why God said, I hold a plumb line. I stopped them the first time. 
Second time, they burned a little fire up around through there, but the, I'm not stopping them again. And so the Assyrians came and literally annihilated everybody. It was gone. Amos was the one who said, he's, he's measuring you. You've got to be careful. He's measuring you. Now, go on to the next vision. But first we have a little conflict in between. Uh, in chapter 7, verse 10. Then Amaziah, the priest of Bethel, sent to Jeroboam, king of Israel, saying, Amos has conspired against thee in the midst of the house of Israel. The land is not able to bear all his words. And so he went for the political pull. He is a priest in Bethel, which is over here. And Bethel was where they had a golden calf. And so around the golden calf, they built a temple and an altar copying Jerusalem. And he's the priest, this Amaziah is the priest of Bethel. And he says, well, the first thing I got to do is handle this fellow politically, this Amos. So I tattle on the king. Go and tell the king that he's not. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? Sounds familiar. <laughs> oh, well, yes, it does. Let's go on. Verse 12. Also Amaziah said to Amos, O thou seer, go, flee thee away to the land of Judah. There eat bread and prophesy there. Prophesy not again anymore at Bethel, for it is the king's chapel and it is the king's court. Right. And he says, so you are out of here. We're kicking you out. You claim to be God's voice. You're not. I am. See ya. You're gone. Go back home. Prophesy down south. Then answered Amos, said to Amaziah, I was no prophet, neither was I a prophet's son, but I was a herdsman and a gatherer of sycamore fruit. I'm nobody. This is shepherd who collects wild fruit. And the Lord took me as I followed the flock. The Lord said to me, go prophesy to my people Israel. So I'm up here because he told me. Now therefore hear thou the word of the Lord. Thou sayest prophesy not against Israel and drop not thy word against the house of Isaac. Therefore thus saith the Lord, thy wife shall be a harlot in the city. Thy sons and thy daughters shall fall by the sword. And thy land shall be divided by line. Thou shalt die in a polluted land. Israel shall surely go into captivity forth of his land. So Mr. Priest from Bethel and the golden calf, you're... Wife will be a harlot in the city because he has no way to take care of herself. Your children will die here. And the land that you think is yours is going to be gone. They're going to take it out. And Israel will all go captive, which is exactly what happened. So he's pretty bold for a farm boy, isn't he? <laughs> I like him. Now, chapter 8. Thus hath the Lord God showed unto me, and behold, a basket of summer fruit. Right now, he sees a basket of fruit. The farm boy's got a lot to think about. 
But it's not just any fruit. It's a very specific type of fruit. It's summer fruit. All right. So I said, what does that mean? That's a basket of fruit. Well, it's summer fruit. Don't forget, it's summer fruit. What is it? Well, I don't know exactly what's in the basket. Let's see what he says about it. And he said, Amos, what seest thou? And I said, a basket of summer fruit. And said the Lord unto me, the end is come upon my people of Israel. I will not again pass by them anymore. Summer fruit is like a strawberry. It would be our kind of summer fruit. Uh, when it's ripe, it's ready, right? Mm-hmm. Oh, what's better than a ripe strawberry? Mm-hmm. Two days later, I knew a guy, he was kind of a, well, he sold strawberries. And, of course, they get rotten after a couple of days, you know? So he had a sign. He put on them, these are jam berries. <laughs> and I always wanted to write on the bottom side, that means they're rotten. Don't buy them. Uh, the point of the summer fruit is that you've got to eat it right now because it's over with. And once you pick that fruit, it's, you got, the time is, you eat it today or tomorrow, it's, it's rotten. And so he says, I saw a basket of summer fruit. And God said, that's how long you got. This stuff is going to be rotten tomorrow and the next day. And so I'm trying to communicate to you that this isn't going to go on and on and on. It's over. I weighed, I put the plumb line and I measured you and you're all askew. And now it's over. Here's how I'm going to show you, my friend Amos. Look at that summer fruit. And he said, man, we got to eat that now. Uh, it's, it's too late. Nothing you can do now. It's all done. And so there is, time is up. Judgment has come. And God is going to deal with these kind of things. This basket of summer fruit. Uh, Look at verse 4 and 5. Hear this, O ye that swallow up the needy, even to make the poor of the land to fail, saying, When will the new moon be gone, that we may sell corn? And the Sabbath, that we may set forth wheat, making the ephah small and the shekel great, falsifying the balances by deceit. Boy, that's a mouthful. He said, here's the attitude in Israel. This is why the the summer fruit is in the basket, because your time is up. Here's what you're doing. You're supposed to be your feast days, when you don't really do what you should anyways. He said, on your feast days, you know what's going through your mind? We got to get this Sabbath over. I got to make some money. Tomorrow we got to go, let's get this feast over with. I got to finish this feast because we need to go out and make money. We need to get going. And here's what we're going to do. The the basket that we're going to sell it in is going to get small. (laughs) 
You ever notice how things are getting smaller? Ice cream used to be this big. Now, it's, uh, now I got one the other day, it's like that big. He says, where did it go? It's getting smaller all the time, right? Bar of soap used to be big, right? Now you get it's as big as I have gone before you start using it. And that's what they'd done, with the, right? And he said, that's what you were planning to do. You're going to shrink the baskets that you're putting the weed in, but you're going to add up the money. The shekels are going to grow. So you're going to give them less and charge them more. And then he says, you were falsifying the balances by deceit. There's a sign of the times. Deceit. Deceit. This, I admit to you, it's one of the most frustrating things I've seen in a while, uh, how much deceit there is abroad. How much deceit uh, to say and do anything. And the deceit just comes and comes. going to cheat people. And he says, that's, just, that's the kind of attitude that God says, ah, yeah, that's it. I'm done with that. Judgment is coming just like that fruit will be rotten tomorrow. That's how quick it's coming. So if you're going to do this against God, you're going to pay a price. So the basket of summer fruit is that which calls the end. Now, chapter 9, we get the fifth vision. These five visions grasshoppers, which he stopped with prayer, fire, he stopped with prayer, and then the measuring plumb line, God holds up a standard. You're not adding up, and so your time is up, the basket of summer fruit will get rotten, and here we go, chapter 9. I saw the Lord standing upon the altar. Alright? Now, that's not where God stands, Right? You know, because we've told you over and over again, where does God stay in the temple? In the Holy of Holies, on top of the Ark of the Covenant, was where God was. And so, in the real temple, all right, you came in, first thing you saw was the altar, right? And then you went beyond that into the next holy place, the candles and the table of showbread and the altar of incense. And then you went into the veil, into the Holy of Holies, where the Ark of the Covenant was. And on the mercy seat of the Ark of the Covenant was where God dwelt. He says, I see him standing on the altar. Why is he there? What's he doing there? How come God is now standing on the altar? Because the altar is where we take care of our sin problem. We go to the altar. That's why the cross represents an altar to us. We go to the cross and pray to be forgiven for our sins. That's that's our altar is the cross. And the altar in the old temple was where you went and made a sacrifice for your sin. But God's standing on the altar no more. I'm not going to allow you to sacrifice again. 
for sin. It's over. What you have done, you will now pay for. So he's standing on the altar prohibiting sacrifice. He won't allow it anymore. That's a pretty tragic thing. Let's see what he says. I saw the Lord standing on the altar, and he said, Smite the lentil of the door that the post may shake. Cut them in the head, all of them. And I will slay the last of them with a sword, and he that fleeth of them shall not flee away. He that escapeth of them shall not be delivered. Though they dig into hell, thence shall my hand take them. Though they climb to heaven, thence I will bring them down. Though they hide themselves in the top of Carmel, I will search and take them out thence. And though they be hid from my sight in the bottom of the sea, hence I will command the serpent, and he shall bite them. No escape. There's nowhere you can go. You can't go to heaven and escape the judgment of God. You can't go to hell and escape it. You can't climb up in the mountain. You can't go to the very bottom of the sea and escape it. He said, you cannot escape this. It's coming. And so he strikes the doorposts. And the building crashes down. And it smashes everybody in the head. And by crushing their head, he put an end to them. Of course, he's talking about the leaders here of Israel was the family of Jeroboam. It was Jeroboam who first split off from Israel and put the two golden calves in. The golden calves, the purpose of them was it would be more convenient for you than going down to God's house. That's why I hate convenience at church. I don't like it. I don't want it to be convenient. I don't want it to be convenient. I don't want to say, we make it as easy on you as you can. We want to be polite and we want to be nice and everything, but we're not here to make it convenient. It's not what we're here for. We're here to say, this is it. If you want to come follow God, you come. It may not always be easy, but we'll come. God's standing on an altar, prohibiting sacrifice, and saying, that's it. I warned you. I gave you two warnings, the grasshoppers and the fire. You didn't pay attention, so I have measured your life. I'm weighing and measuring the way you live. And I'm telling you now, summer fruit, your time is up. And so he stood on the altar and said, no more sacrifice, no more forgiveness. And he smashed the place. And literally exactly what happened is what happened. The Assyrians came under their great general. He had a great general. He came in and literally left nothing behind. Nothing. The whole place was gone. Cities after city after city burned to the ground. Gone. The Assyrians came, like I said, famous for extreme violence. They cut off the heads of the people and pile them up outside the gates. That's what they did. Just as God said. So God said, you were full of deceit political maneuvering, anti-God, defiance against God. It's summer fruit. I'm not going to put up with it. I get a chill when I read that kind of thing because I think about our country and I think about deceit, which seems to be 
on a high level. And I wonder how long God will say, I'm not going to do this. I'm waiting for a basket of summer fruit. It says it's a, you got till tomorrow. I don't know. It seems to me like the judgment of God is being uh, def defiant against God, and so so you say. Well, that's quite a book, man. That's got a lot of hmm. Well, let me give you something good. There's always something good when it's in God's Word. It's very good that we realize, first of all, we can't be deceitful. We can't be fake with God. We can't treat people poorly. We can't do those things. And that's why the judgment of God comes on the nation of Israel, the northern kingdom, for that. But, after all that destruction, all that horrible things, here's what he says. Verse 13 of chapter 9. Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that the plowman shall overtake the reaper, and the treader of grapes him that soweth seed. And the mountains shall drop sweet wine, and all the hills shall melt. And I will bring again the captivity of my people of Israel, and they shall build away cities, inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink the wine thereof, and they shall also make gardens and eat the fruit thereof. I will plant them upon their land. They shall be no more be pulled up out of their land, which I have given them, saith the Lord thy God. This is quite a thing, he says. And like I said, we lucky we got a farm boy who's showing us these things because God wouldn't use this kind of language as anybody else. He said, I'm going to tell you how good it's going to be when you all get yourself straightened out and get yourself set up with God. He said, the plowman is going to overtake the reaper. <laughs> What's the reaper doing? He's taking off the crop, right? He turns around, hey, they're plowing the ground. I just finished reading. Yeah, we got to get going because things are growing so well. We can plant as soon as you harvest. And so the plowman meets the reaper out in the field. The treader of grapes uh, meets him that sows seed. So when do you pick your grapes? At the end of the season. The last thing you do is pick your grapes and throw them in your vat. And you're walking on them and, and squeezing out the, the juice. Right? And he says, oh, excuse me, I'm planting seed. But it's harvest. We just finished. That's right. It's a continual harvest. Continual planting and a continual harvest, a continual growing, and it goes from one to the next, one to the next, so that they start backing up against each other, stepping on each other's toes. The harvester is stepping on the toes of the planter because it grows so well and it goes so so good. He said, "That's what I see coming for the people of God." And we have seen that, my friends. We have seen where there's no bad time. And the blessing of God comes and it comes and we turn around and it comes again. And far we get started, he's coming again and bringing us blessings. So that's the promise of God is that the, the sower and the reaper meet in the field. The, the, the times are good. And the crops are well. All right?
So there's Amos, a farm boy who brought us some good practical farming ideas so that we could understand how God operates. He went and he preached his message up in Israel and he went home. And within 70, 80 years, it all came true. Everything he said came true. Amos, the farm boy who picks wild fruit for a living. It's an encouragement to all of us who are just plain ordinary farm boys doing the will of God, right? Doing the will of God. All right, the story of Amos. Thank you.